Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. Today's guest is Sharon Krauss with her paper, Art as Alchemy. All right, so I'm, I'm interested in the relationship between suffering and art, and the personal interest I have in this is, is that I, I draw on dark themes and dark states of mind, but um, the, the stereotype of the tortured artist, you know, the artist who never manages to, to, to escape from a, a kind of prison of suffering is not something that I... That's not me, that's not most of the artists that I know, and I don't think it's a very helpful image of, of what it is to be an artist. Um, so I'm going to explore and contrast the idea of the tortured artist with the idea of the artist as alchemist. Um, so the, the tortured artist image is a pervasive one, and there are plenty of artists who seem to fit this stereotype. Um, but da, 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 the idea that, that we can take suffering and somehow transmute it into something precious also seems a very rich image. So, all right. So I'm going to ask the question, what is the relationship between suffering and creativity? Um, and I'm going to throw out some, some possible answers and, and go, go through them. So first of all, the idea that suffering and creativity are somehow inseparable. Um, so suffering is, is both necessary and sufficient for creativity. The tortured artist stereotype seems to be based on two ideas. So the, the, the idea that great suffering makes great artists and the idea that without great suffering it's impossible to be a great artist. We look at an artist like Billie Holiday and imagine that she's the singer she is because of how much she's suffered, that her singing is so strongly affecting because it expresses heartbreak and deep despair. And I should say, I'm, I'm mostly going to take examples from the world of music because that's what I'm familiar with. And, you know, they're, they're, I guess they're, they're figures that everyone has, has heard of, and so it's easy. Um, so we, we may assume that the depth of her suffering is intrinsic to her singing, and that her suffer if her suffering were to end, her inspiration would dry up. I want to question both of these assumptions. An artist's suffering clearly feeds into their art, but the way it does so isn't as straightforward as this. If we assume that, the, that a suffering artist's suffering is what makes her the, the artist she is, isn't that to diminish the importance of talent, intelligence, determination, hard work and craft? If we imagine that anyone who went through what Billie Holiday went through would sing as sublimely as her, then how do we explain the rarity of such singers? There are thousands of women who've lived lives not dissimilar to Billie Holiday, yet most of them have died leaving no trace. What made Billie Holiday unique was not her suffering, it was what she did with it. Suffering's not sufficient for creativity then, but perhaps it's necessary Perhaps tortured artists are the only true artists. Perhaps suffering or madness are the prices that must be paid for inspiration. 
This seems to be something that's widely assumed and that we're eager to accept. Artists like Billie Holiday, Janis Joplin, Sylvia Plath, Sid Barrett, of romantic, tragic figures. But even though there are many artists that fit this tragic stereotype, living lives of extreme suffering, this can't be the only model for creativity. There are artists who stand as clear counterexamples. Kate Bush is one who springs to mind. You know, she seems to have an idyllic, had an idyllic childhood, been part of a loving family, and just, just somehow had this amazing, creative, unique voice that you know, just, just came out of her. Um, and then artists who, who seem uh, less clear examples, but, you know, people like Leonora Carrington, um, people who, who seem to have a very mischievous element to, to what they create, and, and that seems to be an important aspect, just as much as suffering, anyway, so... Um, so, if there are artists who don't fit the, this tragic artist stereotype, this seems to suggest that those suffering may be an important component of creativity. It's just one of many possible components. Um, and also, even if suffering is necessary in some sense, ongoing, unrelenting suffering doesn't seem to be. And as a, as a little aside, um, something I'm not going to have time to, to address, but I think is an interesting question, is why we expect or want artists to, to have had this, this kind of suffering or, or live this life of suffering when we don't expect um, sportsmen and women or scientists or you know, other, other people that... that become icons. We, we, we're quite happy with them having just very comfortable, normal lives and just being good at what they do. So what is it about artists that makes us feel that they have to suffer? <laughs> um, okay, so let's move on to number two. Motivation. The idea that suffering is what motivates us to create. It might be thought that it's only when we're suffering that we're driven to create. And conversely, the idea of creating when we're happy might seem a nonsense. So somebody, somebody might ask, um, if, you're, if you're already happy, why would you bother creating? And you, I've had a discussion with a, with a friend in which this, this was the way, this was the way she, she thought about, you know, creativity is something that, that we use when we're not feeling happy. If we're happy, we just sit around, you know, just enjoying ourselves. But if we're... If we're not happy, then we're driven to create. But this is, this is a, a really depressing idea to me. If it were true, then it would seem to trap artists in a, in a prison of perpetual suffering. So, you know, the idea that if, if, if we ever find happiness, then we lose our inspiration. We lose our motivation. But I think it's, it's only if we're in the grip of the tortured artist stereotype... That, that this way of thinking about the creative impetus seems right. If instead we're thinking of, it, of creativity as a process of exploration and discovery, motivated in part by curiosity and a kind of playfulness, or as a response to the world around us, um, or a way of communicating ideas, creating seems 
just as likely to be something we do when we're happy as when we're sad. If anything, the times that are the most difficult, painful and, and low ones are often the times when we're least creative. And this was something that, that I guess um, Stevens talk about madness being a deadness. That's, that's the, the, the sort of paralyzing effect that, that real sadness or madness has on us. So, and even the artists who seem to most embody the tortured artist stereotype struggle to create when they're at their lowest points. And, and the, the people whose lives are a daily grind due to poverty or, or war or whatever else, these are not the people who, who become artists. They just have got too much on their plate. They're, they don't have the time, they don't have the, the headspace to, to really do anything more than survive. Okay, so... Um, I guess that there's, a, there's a background sense in which suffering might be part of what motivates us to create. Um, the idea that, that in the background for all of us, we know that death is, is, is waiting for us and that, that everyone we love is going to die or be lost to us in, in some way. Either we'll go first or they'll go first. Um, and the world around us can seem cruel or indifferent so we've got this, this, this wider context of, of suffering against which creating makes, makes sense. And, and I think that's, that's one sense in which suffering motivates us. Okay, but against this backdrop of, of the suffering that is the human condition, the things that motivate us to create seem a mix of positive and negative, with suffering being just part of the picture. Creating, like gardening or baking, loving or socialising, is something we're just as likely to do when we're happy as when we're sad. For an artist, creating is part of everyday life, something done through thick and thin, and also, like these other activities, something that contributes to our happiness and well-being. Okay, number three, germination. The idea that dark times are necessary in order for ideas to germinate. Even if our darkest times are not necessarily our most creative, perhaps it's true that, that only by experiencing dark times can we go on to create. Perhaps the dark times are a gestation period. Perhaps they're necessary, as necessary for creating as germination is for flowering. The writer Alan Garner believes this to be the case with his writing. He talks about a bleak low that had him silent and motionless for two years. A year after, he snapped out of this state and started work on his most challenging book, was full of energy firing on all cylinders. He sees the two states as being essentially related and thinks that he needed a period of semi-hibernation to recharge his batteries and ready him for the creative burst that followed. The experience Garner describes is a long, crippling gestation period, longer than, than I guess most artists would, would, would want, um, longer than perhaps is necessary. Um, and I'd like to, like to question the idea that, that something like that must be necessary for, for creating 
Um, so Garner's insistence on this seems post hoc to me. Um, and all we can really say is that one, one state preceded the other, not that one brought about or was necessary for the other. An alternative reading for what happened to Garner that I find more plausible is that his illness was something beyond his control that served no purpose, but that he went on to context, contextualise it and put it to good use. I don't believe that in general suffering happens for a reason. Suffering happens, and then it's up to us to, to make sense of it, to make use of it somehow, and that's, to me, more magical than, than if you know, the suffering is somehow destined for us to go through in order for us to create. The idea that whatever life throws at us and whatever we suffer, as artists, we find a way to, to make something with it, so to make something positive. That's, you know, that's what, what, what I think Alan Garner is doing and that's what, what I, I think is actually going on when we, when we do that. And this is something I'll be returning to. It does seem likely that periods of doing nothing are important to creativity. Planting seeds in the subconscious and leaving them to germinate seems a part of the creative process. And this horticultural imagery of planting seeds and tending them and having the patience to allow them to, to shoot in their own time, this seems a, a good metaphor for creativity. If we think of the creative process in this way, the darkness necessary for germination need not be the darkness of suffering. It may be the darkness of sleep or temporary forgetting, of meditation or ritual work, or just a period of time during which the spotlight of our conscious, our conscious attention is, is turned off. Okay, so number four, subject matter. Sadness, suffering and darkness are good copy. Suffering, tragedy, violence, madness, etc. do feature highly in great art, but so too do things like love, hope, courage, kindness and joy. Whatever ingredients go into the pot, whether we succeed in creating depends on what we do with them, not just on them being there. A catalogue of suffering doesn't automatically make for great art any more than a shopping list of exotic ingredients guarantees a tasty meal. We must combine our ingredients skillfully. An artist must take suffering and make something with it, do the actual creating. Suffering alone, or oh, sorry, suffering along with anything else that goes into the pot has to be transformed. It's worth stopping at this point to reflect on the role art plays in our lives. Why do we value art? Why do artists make it? Jeanette Winterson is eloquent on this subject. She talks about art as the thing that stands between us and the abyss, saying, saying that the tragic paradigm of, of human life, uh, or this is a quote, I didn't see the, the quote mark. Here we go, Jeanette, Jeanette Winterson. The tragic paradigm of human life is lack, loss, finality, a primitive doomsaying that has not been repealed by technology or medical science. The arts stand in the way of this doomsaying. And then she goes on to say, 
Art shows us how to be more than we are. It is heightened, grand, an act of effrontery. It is a challenge to the confines of the spirit. Art is a daily rebellion against the, uh, against the state of living death routinely called real life. So art is our way of resisting the tragedy of human existence, of turning tragedy into ecstasy. That art can release us from the prison of suffering is a large part of why we value it and why we continue to make it. That art enables us to make sense of suffering, death and struggle, enables us to re relieve our pain and that of others is a wonderful thing. That we can take suffering as well as other things we experience, put it into the alchemical vessel and transmute it into gold is the magic of creating. Number five, art as alchemy. My, I think my shadow's in the way. But <laughs> um, so the idea that suffering is base matter an artist transmutes into something precious. Though suffering and the darker side of life are important to creativity then, as artists we're not forced into lives of suffering. Creativity can rescue us from suffering. Whatever we suffer and however important suffering is to our art. As artists, we can take our suffering and shape and transform it. This shaping and transforming is essential to art, and as artists, we have access to tools and techniques that enable us to take in suffering and darkness and create meaning, beauty, and joy. So now I'm interested in what is, what's the transformational process how does art work, this alchemical magic? Before addressing this question, let me briefly say that, that if art truly transforms suffering in this way, then art is magic and artists are magicians, as Alan Moore, in his lovely North, Northampton accent, is, is, is very, very good at making, making, making clear for us. I believe that magic is art and that art, whether that be writing, music, sculpture or any other form, is literally magic, etc. And he's... <laughs> I love Alan Moore. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I haven't got quite the popping eyes to, to, to carry it off, but yeah. Um... Okay, so there seem to be two main ways that art transforms suffering. Firstly, by reframing or recontextualizing it, and secondly, by radically transforming it. The first is relatively straightforward, and the second is where the real alchemy lies. Sometimes we create by taking an experience and presenting it in a way that imbues it with meaning. Something we experience can be shown to parallel the experiences of countless other people, to take on a universal or even mythic quality, or it can be seen as part of a bigger picture, a dark but necessarily part, necessary part of a beautiful whole. Um, how this is done depends on the skill of the, of the artist, their particular set of skills. So, for example, when, when a novelist decides what aspects of a scenario to put in and what to leave out, whether to make a, a narrative linear or non-linear, 
what aspects of the characters to show us and how to do this and when to do this. She does all of these things in a way that, that frames or presents the story to us in a certain way. Um, in doing so, she works her magic, showing us beauty, form and pattern where we'd otherwise fail to see any. Creating links or resonances where previously there were none. Taking disparate elements and connecting and harmonising them. Sometimes in creating, a greater alchemy is necessary. Our starting points, experiences, emotions, ideas, aims, whatever, undergo a radical transformation. And what emerges as the finished work bears no more resemblance to them than a butterfly bears to the caterpillar that went into the chrysalis it came out of. And this analogy is apt. Caterpillars don't grow into butterflies. The transition that takes place in the, in the chrysalis involves an intermediary state of complete breakdown into a formless caterpillar soup, which the cells that grow into wings, antennae, etc., feed on. I think it's helpful to think of the space in which creating takes place as an alchemical vessel, a hermetically sealed space free from outside interference. What happens within it is governed by its own aesthetic rules and is not an extension of ourselves, a place for our egos to run wild or our insecurities or repressed desires to be pandered to. For desires, for desires for things such as money, recognition and success to dictate how we work. I think it's not even a therapeutic space where we do you know, what we think will heal us. When any of these external pressures exert themselves within the creative space, they warp the process. We must put ourselves in service to the creative process, putting aside these other things whilst we work. And we should be vigilant at keeping them out and notice when they try to smuggle themselves in, as they'll inevitably try to do. And what I'm saying here is, is there's, a, there's a, a, a clear parallel for me between this creative space I'm talking about and, and ritual space that, that we create to, to work, work in. It's not, it's not that you know, we're, we're needing to, to isolate ourselves and, and you know, be, be separate from the world, but it's that there is this space that's defined and works according to its own rules, that we don't allow the, the, the unhelpful things into. Um, so, so also we must let the work go beyond what initially motivated it the relationship between artist and artwork is like the relationship between parent and child to succeed at parenting we must, we must have our children's best interests at heart and act to serve their needs not cling to them or use them to serve our interests so it's the same with our creative work if our work serves as a receptacle for our fantasies and unfulfilled wishes, if it serves to bolster our self-esteem, boost our egos, we'll fail as artists. Though our experiences inform the work, we must grant the work independence, allow it to cut its ties with them, to develop according to its own rules, forgetting them, leaving them behind like a boat 
cut adrift on a, on a wide sea, leaves the shore. We must relinquish control and allow the work to lead us. And while we work, we inhabit the symbolic realm of the work, and we work and rework within it, manipulating symbols according to the rules of the space. These rules, like the rules of a game, allow some moves and, and sort of dis disallow others. So we're not imposing anything from the outside. We don't project our own shit onto the work. We don't allow considerations such as whether our audience or our critics will like it to con constrain or direct the work. Whatever experiences inspired us to start with, they're now forgotten as well, and we focus on the medium. We focus on the symbols we're using, whether it's words, sounds, melodies, rhythms, whatever. We edit and tweak, we change words that don't scan, we find rhymes, we find rhythms, we evoke moods using these symbols. Um, yeah, we, we, we create interesting shapes. We, we just allow the, the, the symbols to, to congeal and come together into something new. And the work we make will only have integrity if it's formed in this way. The process will at times be chaotic, formless and confusing. We won't know how long it will take or what will emerge at the end. Sometimes it will feel like we're achieving nothing, and at other times there'll be exhilarating breakthroughs and a sense of things falling into place. We'll need to trust the process and follow where, where it leads us. If we do so, in the end, we'll emerge with something precious. And what we emerge with, as well as being something that works on its own terms, as a work of art will possess healing powers. Once we've finished our work, we see that the patterns and shapes we've created within it mirror patterns and shapes in ourselves and in the world. The work becomes a mirror that reflects and reveals truths. If we've given it the freedom to develop and grow on its own terms, to go beyond the limits we would otherwise have imposed upon it, it'll be capable of reflecting deep truths. If we don't give it this freedom, it will only reflect, reflect the superficial. At the end of the process, we bring these treasures home. We find that the pain or suffering that engendered the work has been transformed. Thank you. rendering unconscious. You've just heard Sharon Krause. This talk was first given at Candid Arts Trust London in May of 2016 as part of the Psychoanalysis, Art, and the Occult Conference. To read collected papers from this conference, please visit our publisher's website, trapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T. Dot net. 
For more about Sharon Krause, please visit her website, www.sharonkraus.com. That's S-H-A-R-R-O-N-K-R-A-U-S.com. Sharon has records coming out this year on Sunstone Records and Ghost Box Records. For more on myself or Rendering Unconscious, please visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, or our website, renderingunconscious.org. Thank you.